Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel, as always. And Lucas, I don't know about you, but I'm getting a sense of deja vu with this episode. I can't imagine why. I really can't. Well, I don't know. May have something to do with the fact that not only are we going to get the same two teams, but those same two teams still play in the same venue. So we are getting quite a sense of deja vu, like I said here. Yeah, definitely is. It's, I mean, we, we're going to have examples and further examples of teams from the same city playing in a World Series, and obviously this is our second consecutive Subway Series, and there will be several more yet to come in future episodes, but it's interesting that we have one the following week that's the exact same teams from the exact same city, and we have yet another series where every game is being played at the Polo Grounds. And there are no days off this time, just so you know. But the series will be considerably shorter, spoiler alert. And let's get into what's going on. It was actually a somewhat rocky start for the Yankees because Babe Ruth and Bob Uso were suspended for the first 33 games of the season because they embarked on a prohibited barnstorming tour after the 1921 World Series because the theory was that fans would not be as likely to attend the World Series if they knew that they could see the same players elsewhere after the series was over. And somehow the Yankees got off to a 22-11 and start and that put them in first place in the American League, and that was due in part to them poaching what little was left of the Red Sox. You had pitchers Joe Bush and Sam Jones coming in, along with shortstop Everett Scott and Joe Dugan at third base. So it really was not a tough blow for the Yankees at first, but they still needed to hold off the St. Louis Browns to win the pennant. Yeah, and that uh, no barnstorming rule... This is actually the last year, I believe, that's in effect because I remember reading about that when we were prepping for last week's episode that, oh yeah, Babe Ruth went on and did a barnstorming tour and got suspended for it and he actually appealed and it was a result of that appeal that it's like, okay, you're still going to be suspended for the beginning of the year, but we are going to remove this rule going forward. And I think the suspension took a toll on his performance that year. He hits 315, 35 home runs in 110 games, which by most people's standards is a pretty good season, but not Babe Ruth. We're used to him putting up Herculean numbers at this point in his career, so definitely a bit of a disappointment by Ruth's standards. Yeah, I mean, I went and I looked at the home run numbers, only saw 35 and went slacker. I didn't even bother to look at the 110 games, and I'd completely forgotten again about the, oh, right, he was suspended at the beginning of the year. Duh. That extrapolates to a home run total in the low 50s. I mean, not quite the 59 that he had the year before, but still a pretty Herculean number. Yeah, 99 RBIs as well. And meanwhile, the New York Giants winning the pennant ahead of the Reds by seven games. And, I mean, come on, who's not going to think of these two teams meeting up again the following year, especially when we literally just had this World Series a year ago? It was a pretty good World Series, all things considered, too. I mean, it went eight games. Now, granted, the issue that we had as we went over in the last episode, you had injuries to Babe Ruth that definitely played a role. He's healthy coming into this one, and it's, I'm sure, the prevailing thought in 
the Yankees clubhouse is if Babe Ruth stays healthy, we've got a legitimate shot at this thing because he more than held his own in 1921, and that was with an injury. If he's healthy, look out. And although those 99 RBIs were good for Ruth, they were not as good as a couple of Giants who had the chance to play the whole season. First off, you have Irish Musel, the brother of Bob, hitting 331 and hitting 16 home runs, 132 RBIs. You had George Kelly with an OPS of 860, hitting 328 and 107 RBIs, 17 home runs. So the Giants definitely had the players to match up with Ruth's power and very interestingly looking at the starting pitchers here not one of them had a sub okay one of them had a sub three ERA Phil Doug was a 2.63 ERA but no 20 game winners which is kind of unusual for a pennant winner in this era and I think that these higher ERAs are a good indicator that the home run is here to stay. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the regular season numbers for guys that pitched in the World Series, like you said, I mean, Rosie Ryan had a 301 ERA for the Giants in 1922. But other than that, I mean, it's Art Neff was at 329. Our good friend from last week's episode, Jesse Barnes, logged a 351 ERA. And the Yankees staff, though, not really a lot better. I mean, Bob Shockey was the only guy on their staff with a sub-3 ERA. Pretty much everyone else was between about 3.30 in Bullet Joe Bush and 3.67 in Sad Sam Jones. What a name, by the way. Very much so. By the way, if you're hearing someone in the background, that is Lucas's newborn, Myla. How's that going, by the way, before we continue? It's going pretty good. Um, She was just baptized over the weekend here, and she's not quite ready to go to sleep, so she's making a little mini cameo in this week's episode. Well, we'll see if any more cameos will follow. But in the meantime, of note, before we get to the games, this was the first World Series that was broadcast directly from the scene of action on radio. You had Grant Van Rice and Raymond Guy, who was an engineer at WJZ Radio in Newark, calling the action. And it's really interesting because, I mean, I'm sure this isn't a surprise because radio is still very much a novelty at this point. Grantland Rice was known as a prominent writer for the New York Herald Tribune. And he had a syndicated column called the Sportlight. And his greatest quote was, For when the one great scorer comes to mark against your name, he writes, Not that you won or lost, but how you play the game. That's the old quote that we hear a lot of, and good to see the attribution, and good for our friend one Grantland Rice, who we mentioned in last week's episode was doing uh, stuff on a couple of radio stations for the 1921 World Series and gets to be fully part of the action here in 1922. About 5 million people on the eastern seaboard listens to the World Series on the radio No disrespect to the western part of the country, but it was still finding its way at this point. But we will see them much later on. So again, thank you to Grantland Rice for his work of broadcasting what had to have been pretty difficult because there weren't a lot of radio broadcasters calling baseball games very much in its infancy at this point. It's one of those, like, were we born 100 years earlier? Would this have been us, potentially? You never know, right? You know, I always wonder if I had a time machine, which we talk a lot about 
uh, if I could go back to like the 1890s or 1900s and actually look like a good basketball player. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like somebody six four in in my case, like I'd be able to pull down at least some rebounds. Probably, although I don't know if I'd have the muscle mass to compete with these rugby players who were trying to play basketball. But we are getting way off topic here. Let's get to the 1922 World Series. Like I said, not going to be a whole lot to write home about, but we will do our best here. Game one of the series, the Giants win 3-2, to two, despite committing three errors. Drink. Yes, the Yankees actually led that first game until the eighth inning when Dave Bancroft, Heine Grove, Frankie Frisch, and Musil had consecutive hits, and that gave them the 3-2 to two victory. So immediately, the Giants not really respecting the Yankees, at least uh, what well, maybe they did during the first seven innings, but definitely not by the end of this game. Bullet Joe Bush was pretty much cruising all the way through the first seven innings he had gone through the order by my count I believe three times up to that point and so coming back into the eighth you're facing him a fourth time but you know we're still in an era where starting pitchers are going the distance and then just whether he ran out of gas or what the case is I don't know but it's you know going into that if you go kind of by win expectancy the Yankees had an 81% chance of victory at this point. And then, like you mentioned, the Bancroft, Grove, Frisch, Musial, singles. Musial with the game-tying two-run single. And then Ross Youngs with a sacrifice fly to bring home Frankie Frisch. And that ends up being the difference in the ballgame. Game two. We have 37,020 people in the stands for this. In a game that ends in a 3-3 tie after 10 innings, but it was only 4.46 p.m. when the game was called, and there were at least 30 minutes of daylight left. And that did not sit well with the crowd. They booed Commissioner Landis and George Hildebrand, the umpire. Landis was watching for the first row of the stands, and writers and fans suspected that they called the game early so the teams could make more money on an extra game. And it created so much controversy that Landis had to announce that all the proceeds from that particular game would be donated to charity. So, nice way to save face, but I'm sure a lot of people would not forget that, especially those who only had a chance to go this one game of the World Series. I'm breaking out the inflation calculator. So, the gate receipts for that game, it was... In excess of $120,000, that in today's money is worth a hair over $2.1 million. So a little bit more about that decision, too, because like you said, there was a lot of controversy and that the teams were maybe not necessarily trying to go for a win here in an effort to get more gate receipts, which doesn't make a ton of sense from the Yankees' perspective, given that they blew the early 2 nothing lead in Game 1. But what happened was Commissioner Landis really wasn't thrilled with what happened here. And one story that we hear about this was that he went to uh, Hildebrand, the umpire, and asked, why the Sam Hill did you call the game? And Hildebrand responded that there was a temporary haze on the field. And whether that ended up playing a role in the postponement despite the 30 minutes of daylight left, I don't know. Again, time machine would be helpful. We are definitely a long way away from the NFL's Fog Bowl that would take place 66 years later 
in which the teams continue to play on in spite of that. So I'm just saying, if football teams could play through fog, why can't baseball teams play through haze? Now, granted, this is still an era with entirely day baseball and no lights, but still, I can understand why people would be upset about this, especially if even the commissioner is questioning why this game was called. There's just something to me very American about the whole, you know, we don't want things ending in a tie. And what's the old quote? Like a tie is like kissing your sister, I think is a quote that I've heard about it. And so it's kind of interesting that you see this even as far back as 1922. And yet, you know, you have things like the World Cup where, oh yeah, we can have those matches end in a draw all the time. It's not a big deal. And in American sports, it's like, nope, overtimes, extra innings for days. So... As soon as we get that controversy behind us, we play Game 3, which was won by Jack Scott of the Giants, who had been cast off from the Boston Braves, and he had a 40-44 and career record, and McGraw rescued him from the scrap heap in the middle of the season. It was a four-hit shutout. The Giants, meanwhile, had 12 hits. 3 to nothing was the final score, and Babe Ruth actually got on the Giants' bad side because he slid hard into Grow at third base and the benches jawed at each other the whole rest of the game. The Giants actually challenged Ruth to a fight. Ruth and Busio both showed up at the Giants' clubhouse after the game and they were ejected by McGraw before anything serious happened. So, tempers are starting to flare here in this Subway series. That's feisty. I like it. Would be interested to see what would have happened if they had actually fought in the clubhouse. Like, would Landis have come down? Like, would he have suspended Ruth for Game 4? We will never know. And all respects to John McGraw for stepping in before Ruth and Musil did anything serious. It just goes to show you that even though Ruth was the rising star in baseball, at, I mean, not even just the rising star, the best player in baseball at this point, McGraw had still been the professional game a lot longer, and... He, as such, he commanded respect. So I do applaud Ruth and Musil for showing respect to McGraw by leaving the clubhouse once McGraw requested it. I feel like we just kind of keep coming back to this of just how great a leader John McGraw was. And I mean, we've seen it obviously with the fact that his name keeps coming up over and over again in this podcast. And a lot of it has to do with his teams being super talented. But obviously, you have to have a good guy at the helm to really take you to the next level. And clearly John McGraw is that guy, both on the field and off it. Utmost respect to what Mr. McGraw there. Game four, it was raining hard at the polo grounds and the Giants decided to unleash their offense, singled the Yankees to death, one, four to three. Of notes, the Yankees had a two to nothing lead, but the Giants put up a four spot in the top of the fifth inning, and that was all the offense they needed. The Yankees would get one more run the rest of the way, but too little, too late. And just taking a look at the box score for this, because like I said, uh, they were singles to death. The Giants had nine hits in this game, only one of which went for extra bases. That was a double by Hugh McQuillan. So definitely a product of a baseball era gone by. And that Hugh McQuillan double did set up the rally. And it's kind of interesting that you mentioned the single to death because that's what the Yankees did in the bottom of the first. They went single, single, Babe Ruth fly out, Wally Pipp single, Bob Musial single. Although the uh, Wally Pipp single, he w 
uh, Pip was thrown out trying to advance to second on the place, so we have another uh, toot plan in a World Series on the part of the Yankees. But yeah, no, it, it was in that top of the fifth. The Giants singled them to death. I count four singles in the process, although we have a uh, pickoff of Ross Youngs, who knocked in that last run of the inning, following that with High Pockets Kelly batting. Another outstanding name. Before we get into Game 5, I just want to bring one thing up. We've mentioned this before. The picture of the program that I have here in front of me, Giants versus Yankees, it features McGraw and Yankees manager Miller Huggins on the front. So I just want to go back to that question that we posed in an earlier episode. I mean, I think it was the owners who were on the cover of the World Series program, but can you still imagine managers taking up the entire cover of the World Series program? Like, could you imagine Aaron Boone and Dave Roberts, for instance, on the cover of the World Series program, not Aaron Judge and Clayton Kershaw. Oh, absolutely not. And it honestly, it surprises me a little bit, given Babe Ruth's popularity at this point, that he's not on the cover. But, I mean, that's just a show of the product of the era that we're in. Uh, the programs for this, by the way, cost 25 cents in 1922. Also, one other thing I want to mention, 1922 is the year that the show slash movie Thoroughly Modern Millie is set in. And... Uh, when we were freshmen at North Central College, Lucas, I was working during our first trimester there on the production that the college was putting out, Thoroughly Modern Billy. The opening song actually goes, what they're forgetting is this is 1922. So just thought I'd mention that. Oh, nice little tie-in. So game five, we see the Yankees trying to avoid a sweep. They actually took a 3-2 lead into the eighth inning. You might recall they had a 2-2-nothing lead going into the eighth inning of Game 1. But the Giants pounced on Joe Bush that inning. They scored three runs on hits that were timed well and placed well. And it was all that the Giants needed to sweep the World Series 5-3, the final score for the second straight year. They beat the Yankees in the Fall Classic. Both Game 1 and Game 5, it's like poetry. It rhymes in the sense that it was Bullet Joe Bush on the mound and was doing pretty well through 7, and then it's that bottom of the 8th inning. And it's against that same top of the lineup coming up for the Giants, and once again they do it. And Joe Bush even got the first guy out, and then you have a single by Heine Grove, Frankie Frisch doubles, so you've got second and third, only one out. Irish Musial bounces to short. They actually managed to get Grow out at home, so it seems like they're going to get out of it. They intentionally want Ross Young, so you've got bases loaded, two outs, and then High Pockets Kelly with a single to center field scores Frisch and Musial. Uh, Lee King ends up singling Ross Young's home to make it a 5-3 ball game. And then Art Neff goes pop out, fly out, fly out in the top of the ninth to complete the sweep. Interestingly, uh, even though the Yankees were this big power hitting team and Ruth obviously had a lot to do with that, it was the Giants' much more simple approach to baseball that won the series for them. They had 50 hits in this series, Only two of them went for doubles, one went for a triple, one went for a home run. So that means out of 50 hits, 46 of them were singles. Can you imagine that? 
Not in today's game. You always hear the old terminology of get him on, get him over, get him in. And I remember that with a much more modern team that you love that will come up a little bit. But even that particular team, the 2005 White Sox, there was a lot of pop on that squad. I, you know, I'm thinking, obviously, of that top of the lineup of Pitsednik and Iguchi wreaking havoc. But yeah, no, 46 out of 50 hits being singles and just... I'd be interested to see their numbers with runners in scoring position because obviously they got the big hits they needed when they needed it. And then on the other side too, after a pretty strong 1921 series, Babe Ruth was held to just a 118 average, no home runs. He only drove in a single run in the 1922 Fall Classic. Only two hits, easily the worst World Series of Babe Ruth's career. He would eventually appear in seven World Series with the Yankees. And a lot of that to do with the giant style pitching staff of Hugh McQuillan, who we've mentioned already, Jesse Barnes, whom we've also mentioned before, Art Snap, and Jack Scott. The Yankees end up scoring only 11 runs in five games. So just goes to show you that Great pitching can be great hitting. The Yankees as a team hit only 203, only an OPS of 541, a buck 76 ERA for the Giants. So just goes to show you that if you have the right horses, you know, you can run the Kentucky Derby as the manager of said 2005 White Sox, Isaac Guillen, once said in an interview that year. Well played. Irish Musil, by the way, drove in seven runs for the Giants. It was obviously a huge loss for the Yankees. Bill Huggins nearly lost his job as Yankees manager despite winning back-to-back pennants. And, of course, with Ruth underperforming the series, he dealt with criticism as well. So you have to think about the possibility of both men desperately needing something, anything to rebound in 1923 because 1922 was not their year. Uh, no, it was not. Um, this is actually a congratulations, though, to John McGraw. This is his third World Series win, and it turns out to be his last. Uh, another interesting tidbit here. So the Giants end up clinching this one at home. This is the last time the Giants win a World Series in their home ballpark. They don't do it anymore in New York, and they don't do it at all when they move out west. So that about covers it for the 1922 series. Coming up in 1923, we have Deja Vu all over again to quote a future Yankees legend as these teams meet for a third straight year. This time, they each have their own ballpark. So will a third time be the charm for the Giants or will the Yankees and Ruth shake off their putrid performance from the previous World Series and will they finally have the opportunity to win the last game of the season and actually do it. Tune in next week to find out. That's right. So for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1922 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe as well. We will see you next time. <laughs>